Hello, and welcome to The Victory Podcast. I'm your host, Monique Watson. On this episode, I sat down with my friend, Reginald Darby. We talked a bit about how we know each other, um, a little bit about our history that may you all may find interesting. Reginald also shared with us his um, time spent on the Hill, how he got into those positions, and some challenges he faced along the way. We also talk a few current events and um, a host of other topics. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy it. So welcome to the Victory Podcast. I'm your host, Monique Watson, and I have a wonderful pleasure to uh, chat with a friend of mine who we were just talking before we got started. We haven't seen each other. We're on a Zoom call now. Haven't seen each other probably in over 10 years. Yeah, 12 years. Oh, my God. Ugh. We're getting old. Um, my friend, uh, <laughs> I know I date myself. Uh, my friend, Reginald Darby, how are you doing, Reggie? I'm doing quite well. How about yourself? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Uh, it's really great. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Um, and welcome. First time. Hopefully we have you back. We'll see how today goes. You may not want to be back on. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> We shall see. Uh, um, I don't run away from things too often. So depending on how tough your questions are or where this conversation goes, we'll see what happens. Awesome. Awesome. So maybe you can tell the folks a little bit about yourself and uh, how we know each other. Yeah. So um, Reginald Darby here, originally from Austin, Texas. Um, I currently live in Washington, D.C. Uh, Monique and I met each other our freshman year at Howard University, class of 2009. Um, back in 2005, actually, um, she, I think, did you help me out with my campaign for freshman class president? I can't remember. I, I think I did, or we met in the course of that, one of the two. Um, yeah. Definitely yeah. met early freshman year. Exactly. That whole huge click, like freshman year goes. <laughs> oh, yes. So Monique and I met because um, I stayed in Drew Hall, which was like the infamous freshman male dorm on Howard's campus. And I stayed in room 420 um, and I hosted a um, Super Bowl party and Monique came with um, this other girl that was her friend named Tamarit, who happened to be dating my friend um, Sam at the time. And then they introduced us and then Monique and I started to date, which was <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> and now that I think about it, um, you I remember one thing about you, your thumbs and your big toes do not bend, correct? Oh my God, I can't believe you remember that. Yes, um, I don't think <laughs> that I've shared it on the podcast. Yeah, I have like a fuse joint, like it's fully fused in this thumb, partially kind of fused in this other thumb and big toes are the same. So, I mean, they work, I walk, I can write all the things, but it's just, yeah. Oh my God, I'm so, so funny that you remember that. But yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's how we met and dated for yeah. a little while, but you know, it's all good. Yeah, date for a little while, and then um, we'll talk about this later on in the podcast, of course, but Reginald found out who Reginald really was and decided to live in his truth and uh, moved on from there. But um, yeah, I, I've i worked on Capitol Hill, very active in politics at the state, local, and federal level. Um, I'm now the vice president of programs for um, an organization called the Millennial Action Project that focuses on building those relationships between um, the Republicans and Democrats or any other sides uh, so that we can get to a place where we're more so thinking about what our generational needs and what our generational commonalities are. 
Um, and then also, I've worked on Capitol Hill for multiple members of Congress. And just to get this out of the way, I worked um, on the Republican side. So yes, I am a Black gay Republican. Um, but that doesn't necessarily determine my own personal ideology or how I choose to maneuver uh, my day-to-day um, day, day -day life. Um, so yeah, that's just a little bit about myself. I love tennis. If anyone asks you, they'll tell you I'm a huge tennis fan. I've played tennis since I was in seventh grade, um, both competitively at the school level and also now um, in, a, in the national USTA league. Um, and then also, uh, I'm a, I have a fur baby. Her name is Asher. You know, she turns one in a couple of weeks. She gets on my damn nerves. Can I curse on this podcast? Yes, absolutely. Oh. We're, we're not <laughs> sponsored. We have no money, so they can't tell us anything. Got you. So no, she gets on my damn nerves, but I love her uh, more than anything I can imagine. And then also, um, I have a fiance. Um, he's absolutely amazing. Yep, got the ring. <laughs> uh, we've been together going on four years now, I think it is. Um, but yeah, a lot has changed in my life, all for the better. Um, and I'm looking forward to a lot more change. Awesome. That's so excited. Yay. So excited. <laughs> so happy for you. Congratulations on the engagement. Um, I watched from social media, so I knew that one. <laughs> That's the awkward sort of weird thing about social media allows you to kind of like, I don't know, it's almost like a level of voyeurism because you stay sort of in the loop of people's things, but then you're like, but I haven't actually had a conversation with this person in a long time. So awesome. Yeah, let's, let's dive a little bit deeper into, that's a good, I think, summary of who you are. Um, but yeah, let's talk a little bit more about your life and career. You talked a bit about working on the Hill. I know that's exciting. I know I also... I mean, I was an intern, uh, extended intern, just being in DC, but it's a little bit different than being a staffer for sure. But yeah, talk a bit about that, especially, um, I think it's an interesting dynamic of your kind of personal side with being uh, a black gay man and then working on what is, you know, probably viewed as a different side of the aisle for, for your professional side, working in a, in a Republican congressman's office. So maybe tell a little bit about that and how you navigated that. Um, some tips for others who are maybe interested in the political side of life and what they could do or, yeah. Absolutely. So just to give you a quick rundown. Um, I've worked with a lot of different Republican offices. Um, I started off as an intern back in 2008 um, with, with the House GOP conference. Um, that was chaired by Congressman Adam Putnam uh, from Florida. He's now the, well, he did leave Congress to become the administrator, sorry, the commissioner of agriculture for the state of Florida. And when he left, he, um, he had to give up his chairmanship of that committee or that caucus or that conference. I'm throwing it all over the place today. Um, so in came um, then Congressman Mike Pence of Indiana, who's, now former vice president, <laughs> Mike Pence. Mm -hmm. um, and when Mike Pence came in, he took away the stipend for individuals who were interns. So that was my livelihood while I was a junior at Howard. So I decided to apply for a full-time position in a newly elected member's office who actually represented your hometown of New Orleans. Um, it was Congressman Joseph Gow who took over for William Jefferson. In that mm. office, I was the staff assistant slash legislative aide. And in that role, I got to learn a lot about how a congressional personal office runs, the different, the hierarchy within that office, 
and then also ways to maneuver around in that hierarchy while still being a student at Howard University. I, I, I will say that was possibly one of the most difficult offices I've ever worked in because, you know, when you're at Howard, you think you're just like the hottest shit out there. And Howard grooms their students to believe in themselves. Um, so when I was in that role, I definitely felt like, okay, I can do this. I can do that. I, I'm, I'm above this. But I became very humbled in that role, knowing that it doesn't work that way. So um, I had desires to go and do more with my life. So I left the Hill and I started um, focusing on a few other areas, uh, more specifically criminal justice, healthcare, things of that sort. Um, and I can't, actually came back to the Hill to work for Congressman Allen West from Florida. And I really realized that, yes, I do need to learn a lot more outside of how the Hill operates. And I left again and I started working for the National Association of Health Underwriters. This is an organization that focuses primarily on health insurance agents, brokers, and small business owners. And in that, I learned um, how the American Care Act, uh, sorry, the Affordable Care Act um, works um, in ways that it needs to be fixed. And then after that, I, I came back to the Hill. Actually, no, I did not come back to it. I went to work on criminal justice issues because I had a keen interest on how do we repair um, situations where individuals are leaving the criminal justice system, but ended up going back into it. Um, so I worked for the criminal, for CSG Justice Center. And in this role, I focus primarily on um, reduction, which is the reduction of individuals going back into the system, is back into the system after their release, and then also ways to avoid that sort of to avoid recidivism, uh, whether it's educational training, um, job training, um, just anything that would pre prepare them to be fruitful and active and productive members of their society re-entered into communities. And then I go back to the Hill um, and I worked for Congressman Scott Taylor. And in this role, um, he, honestly, the best office I've ever worked for. Um, he was a Republican from Virginia representing the second district. I'm still in contact with him to this till this day. Um, and in that role, I served as his legislative director and deputy chief of staff. Um, in that role, I was able to work directly with the member, build him um, in the absence of our chief of staff, able to run the office in that way, whether it was HR stuff or just making sure that the office was still operating at a normal, um, like it normally does. Um, and then also just making sure that I was being the best voice for the congressman when he wasn't necessarily able to speak for himself or represent him in a way. Um, in this role, I learned so much around management. I learned so much about the way the Hill operates even more so at a more senior level. And then it also prepared me for when he actually lost his um, re-election and I was able to get another job, um, same position, legislative director, deputy chief of staff. Um, and in that role um, with Congressman Greg Stubbe from Florida, really learning how to operate um, in a way, in a, in a more conservative office, and yet still be true to who I was as an individual. I will say being a, a Black male Republican comes with its own difficulties within itself. Um, individuals feel as if you're not necessarily the most honest or most um, 
truthful to who your community is and to what your cultural background may be, uh, because a lot of individuals feel as if the Republican Party is um, a party of, well, a party of no. And when I say no, I mean a party of no against almost anything, whether it's diversity, uh, a party of no against um, tolerance, a, poli a party of no against um, just different ideas. And honestly, that to me, that it's, that's not the case. Um, there are a lot of Republicans out there that who are who do focus on um, diversity, who do focus on make sure there are different voices at the table. However, there is a larger number of individuals um, that are not like that, and we're seeing that right now. That we're, we're we're leaning more so into a cultural fight instead of actually looking at the policies that should be focused on. Um, and I, I don't want to get into too much detail about that, but one example is clearly you know this whole argument around critical race theory. Um, and how that is, you know, teaching individuals that whiteness is bad when really and truly that's not the case. And it, it upsets me because, well, it doesn't, it disappoints me because there's a lot more that we should be focusing on right now. We saw what happened in uh, DC this past week with the bridge that collapsed um, over our, over a major highway. We saw down in Miami, a whole condominium <clears throat> building um, clearly, we have issues with our infrastructure. Clearly, we have issues that go well beyond this cultural war, and yet we're focusing on that. And I think it takes away from what our ultimate job is as member uh, as public servants, and that's focusing on serving the public. With that, I learned to move. When I say in that, being a Black Republican, I learned that I had to make sure I had a voice at that table because there weren't many like me. So that pressure was on my shoulders. Um, but then when you compound that with being a member of the LGBTQIA community, it becomes even tougher. And a lot of times I was not living in my truth um, about what it meant to be a member of that community, also being black, also being conservative. Um, so I think after I left Congressman Scott Taylor's office, um, which was an office that embraced that side of me and encouraged me to lean into that, I was not a to do that anymore. Um, so when I went into Congressman uh, Greg Stubbe's office, it was more so of me just learning how to operate in that truth, um, learning how to be confident in that truth. And to be completely honest with you, um, I didn't really gain that confidence until I left that office of July of last year. Um, and now I'm at an organization like the Millennium Action Project that not only embraces who I am, but it encourages me to share that. Um, so I just say to anyone who's out there struggling with their own political ideology, their own sexuality or identity um, to lean into your truth. Honestly, it's been one of the most liberating experiences. It's been one of the most fun. Um, and to be completely honest, it has been a bit, you know, it's been stressful, it's been hard, it's been depressing at times, but you find ways to get through that and you find ways to just really revel in just the fact that you are being who you're supposed to be. Um, so I highly encourage it. Absolutely. Yeah, it's critical. I think whether you're part of the LGBTQIA plus, I think I got all the letters in there. I you have to kind of say it like a tribe <laughs> called just all in one, just LGBTQIA plus um, community or, or or an ally to it or whatever. I think it, I think it's important for everyone, regardless of of where they land there. Um, to own who you are. And mm -hmm. part of that is discovering, I think, who you are, which I think 
you know, we've each gone through throughout our years um, that even we've known each other, discovering who we are. Um, so yeah, definitely important to, to grow in that way. Um, good tips. I'm take, I took a couple of notes here, so I'll make sure to include that in the show notes. Um, I this. Um, yeah. And living in your truth. I remember um, you and I started dating, I want to say like around the Super Bowl, our freshman year, spring semester, uh, 2006. And I was battling then with, am I gay? Am I not? Do I act on this? If I do, am I going to lose friends? Um, am I going to hurt Monique? Uh, that was one of my main concerns. And I went back home that summer. We were still together. And I don't know if you realize this, but I became a lot more distant. Um, I just, you know, I didn't text as often. I didn't call as often. I didn't know how to tell you. And then once I gained that courage to tell you, it, you know, your reaction was just like what I expected. You just shut down. And then when we moved into our dorm, uh, sophomore year, we stayed in the same dorm. Hell, we stayed on the same floor. And I was so nervous to see you. Um, I was so nervous to even walk past your room. I made sure I took like, I, there was a stairwell right by my, my room. And I went down one floor just so that I can walk around to the elevator so that I, I wouldn't have to walk past your room. And I, and I felt so bad about it because I was like, what do I do? How do I do this? Um, she's going to hate me. So. Yeah, for me, and I didn't know we were going to get into this, but that's fine. Um, for me, it was, no, but I think it's important conversation because I don't think we've ever really talked about it um, in any great length, at least. I think for me initially was, I think we just, we sort of just, we broke up and it was just like, we broke up. And I was like, okay, cool. And then it was sort of through second and third person that I heard that you came out, which was fine, but it was like, I, I would have appreciated like hearing it from you versus hearing from other people in our clique. That was sort of my initial like shutdown. We're not cool. Cause I was like, I would have thought you would have brought it to me, but I can understand now, you know, cause we're older and whatever, you know, you're a grown up. Um, that that would have been a difficult conversation versus just telling more people in your friend group to that you came out in that way. So I think I think that was my initial like heard of it all. I mean breaking up, yes. But then the other side was just like that we that you that you weren't able or didn't feel comfortable, I guess, or whatever, to to kind of come out to me. But at the end of the day, it's all good. Clearly we're all in fantastic lovely spaces now but yeah absolutely absolutely and but i will say this number one there's two things i want to say number one i apologize to you honestly um at that time i didn't know how to maneuver or how to share that because to me i was more concerned about your feelings than it was anything else um but i'm glad that we're in a space now where we can move forward and be great and just say whatever that was the past but number two I remember something I heard from friends afterwards where your sister came to visit and she made a comment and she was just like you turned him gay or something like that and I was just like no it wasn't her <laughs> but yeah I've, every time I've I heard that a couple about- times from folks yeah but I'm like that's not I was like first of all that's not how being gay works just like people don't turn people straight you don't turn people gay it's just realization for them of who they are or accepting who they are whatever version of that but Mm -hmm. it's always there 
Yeah, yeah. So you did not turn me gay. So don't, if anyone ever says that to me, says that to you, you have it on record. Monique Henry, I'm sorry, Monique Watson now yeah. did not turn Reginald Darby gay. There you go. Good. It's on the record. We'll uh, mark this moment in time. Uh, it's all good. No, it's good. I think it, it's important. And I understand it, especially going to um, going to Howard, going to in, a, in an African-American environment where we know culturally that sort of has been taboo for a long period of time. We're making strides in that area. But I totally get, especially being from Texas, like all the things like working against you to even as as liberal as Austin sort of is, it's still Texas and that struggling with that balance and coming out. So I totally, I look back now and I'm like, it makes sense. It's fine. Um, and, and it's and all good. And is a ordained minister too. So that made it even harder. <laughs> I was, I, I didn't know we're going to down this rabbit hole, but it's, I think it's a good one. Um, especially given that it's pride month and everything. How was that conversation when you came out to her? Was she accepting, upset? Somewhere in the somewhere in the middle. So, I did not come out to my mother. I was outed by someone else to my mother. Oh, no. um, so, from what I know, what I've been told, there was a church event for the women. They had like a luncheon or something. And this was around the time in 2009 when we were finishing up school, and I was having a party at my house because I was moving back to Texas. Um, when I lived in DC, I had posted pictures from the, my going away party and whatnot. And I had it on Facebook and some of the women were my Facebook friends and they saw the pictures and they saw me hanging, like hanging out with other men that they assumed were gay. And evidently they had a conversation at this luncheon where they were talking about, um, good black men gone wrong. Um, whether they've like, they're in prison, um, they have multiple children by multiple women, they're gay. Um, or anything else that they may feel as if is a um, tarnish or, or they're, they're tarnished in some way. And my name came up and um, the pictures from that party were shared around. And one of my mom's close, um, one of my mom's close friends, you know, she didn't participate in the conversation, but she did go back and tell my mom and my mom asked me. And at that point I was 22 and I was like, I'm tired of hiding. I'm, I'm just tired of this. And I just, Confirmed, I was like, yes, I'm gay. And it did not go well at all. Um, she, you know, threw every scripture in the Bible towards me. I didn't feel like arguing at that time, so I just left. Um, but I, I'm happy to say my mother and I are in such a much better, so, 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 such a much better place now. Um, she loves my fiance. She's actually coming up to visit in a couple of weeks. Um, and she's gonna be staying with us. Um, and, you know, she took it hard for the engagement as well, but with anything, there, it takes, time to process, honestly. Um, so I do believe that one day that we're going to be in a place where it's not even like a huge issue. If anything, it's just gonna be like, oh yeah, this is my other son, um, Christopher, Reginald's husband. Um, and I look forward to that. So yeah, it's, it hasn't been, it wasn't an easy road in the beginning, but I will say it's definitely been worth it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So shame to be, it's, it's not fair to be outed, right? It's just not, it's not cool. So people listening, don't out, don't out people. Don't just don't do it. If they're not ready yeah. to tell people, that's their business. As exactly. Tabitha Brown would say. <laughs> that's their business. That's no, their no, business. I, I completely agree with you, mainly because I was guilty of that early on um, in my gay years of outing folks um, that did not deserve to be outed. Um, and I, and it, for me, I felt like, well, if I'm out and I got outed, why not 
anybody else. And I recognize that's not my place. That was never my place. So I definitely encourage individuals, if you do know that someone's gay and they're not necessarily living in their truth, do not do that because that means they're not in a space to do it. Um, and it's, it's on their own accord when they wanna share that. Um, because really and truly, do we ever ask straight people, hey, are you straight? Or when are you, when'd you come out as straight? You know, it's just, it's, it's not fair. It's, um, it's a clear and total inequality. Um, so I would definitely say, just don't do it. It's not your place. Stay in your lane, drink your water, mind your business. <laughs> That's what I'm yeah. doing. Yeah, drink your water, indeed. I saw, um, I saw a thing on like a fitness group that I'm on on Facebook that it was like, you know, if you drink, you know, you're supposed to drink a gallon of water a day. You don't have time to be in other folks' business. So stay, stay hydrated, my friends. Stay like, hydrated because that's the, it's not a good look. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's, let's talk a bit about, um, you know, we're just sort of coming out of the COVID-19 fingers crossed. Um, I'm curious, like uh, with the lockdown, what did you do during lockdown? How was it for you? Anything exciting that happened or anything like that? So how you navigated lockdown? Well, I will, I will say that the lockdown, the biggest thing that occurred was that I got engaged. You know, um, I realized that the person that I had been with was the person I wanted to be with for the rest of my life. I also realized that he, you know how people always say they found their person or this is, you know, the person for me. Honestly, um, I had a whole list of things that I thought that I wanted in my partner. And I have wrote this list down probably about seven, eight years ago. And I went back and looked at that list and I realized it was so superficial. Um, it was so basic. Um, and then I also realized the things that I had on that list is not what I value today. And I made some, you know, I tweaked a little bit, probably about five years ago. And then out of nowhere came this man, um, you know, I met him online, by the way, I met him on this the dating app called Jack, uh, which is primarily focused for gay men of color. Um, and did not think anything of it when I met him, went on a date with him um, right after work one day. And we've been together ever since. Um, but I got engaged. But during the lockdown, I really was able to tap into my own creativity. I was able to, I started a business. Um, I now have uh, my, org, not my organization, my, um, it's a government affairs, general government affairs, um, lobbying, um, also campaign management and crisis management firm called Rosewood Strategies, LLC. I ran a mayoral campaign for an individual running for mayor in New York City. Um, I left that recently in January. Um, what else did I do? I started making candles. <laughs> I just I just found ways to just get really creative and because you have a lot more time when you're not going out drinking at the bars or going out to eat or doing different things. So you had to find something to take up your time. Uh, and to release all that energy you have pent up. Um, and then also I started a whole new job at the Millennial Action Project, um, which was possibly one of the, a sec the second biggest thing that I've done um, during the lockdown. I will say though, that I wish we were still in lockdown <laughs> because I saved so much money. Um, I, I found ways to just enjoy being in a space by myself. 
and not necessarily having to go out and perform and put on for people and whatnot. But I, I will say also, um, I learned that I have a core group of friends that I can lean on, um, that I can talk to and relay what my days are like and listen to them and give feedback as well and just be a resource to them as they are to me. Um, some of my friendships really grew and blossomed. Um, some kind of just went away and I'm okay with that. Um, but for the most part, I just learned that I'm okay in circumstances that are difficult. And there are, there, there are resources that I can lean on, whether it's individuals or just my own self. No, absolutely. Yeah. The lockdown, I, I, I agree with you. I kind of missed the lockdown. It was nice where everybody slowed down. It was nice where nobody's going to nothing. So you're not like, if you, you're not missing anything, you're not like, oh no, I'm not going to, it's like, nobody's doing nothing. Everyone's (laughs) at home. Everyone's, you know, banging through Netflix or Amazon prime or whatever. Um, yeah, it's a good time to really slow down and, and, and kind of reconnect with people. It's good that your relationship blossom. I know I've met some folks who broke up during quarantine. So it was like, Oh, this person's home, like all day, every day, all the time. Oh no. <laughs> so that's awesome. That's awesome. No, that's good. Good activities. I put a couple notes down to um, we'll see. Uh, you can send me your link to the Rosewood strategies. I'll include that in the show notes. Um, so in case people are interested, mm-hmm. um, and let's see what else, uh, pride month. Whoop, whoop. Happy pride. We're almost happy pride. Oh, more days, you know, five yeah. more days. But for five me, more. for me, it's every day, you know, you, you can't, there, go, yeah. you know, I'm prideful regardless of what day of the week it is. I'm black, regardless of what day it is. It is, you know, it is what it is. Bam, got my prize shoes. Wait, let me turn my background <laughs> off. I bought these. I first of all, uh, I see that. Yeah, I am a big Converse fan. Like I have way too many pairs of Converse. Um, and I was online looking at their summer styles just to see what was on there, and they had these really cool Pride influence. Like one. It was really cool. And then what sold me was the rainbow soul. I was like, oh, that's nifty. And even the box was a pride color. Um, love being an ally. Um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So pride month. Do you, I've had conversations. I have a, one of my cousins um, is also gay. We had a conversation a couple episodes ago um, talking about some of the challenges of being a black gay man, like the weather and challenges in society and it, within the LGBTQ community as well. Um, and sort of kind of that balance of, he referenced some experiencing interesting levels of racism within the LGBTQ community, which I thought was interesting because they're also, you know, run into challenges within their community and kind of uh, against mainstream society, but I thought that was an interesting dynamic, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on what it's like being a, a black man in the gay community and being a gay man in the black community, and those kind of challenges and things. So I'll say this: a lot of when I when I think about being a black man in a gay community and being a gay man in a black community, um, it's very reminiscent of my childhood when I was. Um, a black 
kid in a white neighborhood or a white school versus when I came home to my family who lived in down, like in East Austin, um, where I was this black kid from the suburbs. Um, it was almost like I was not, I said, not almost, I don't want to say accepted, but it wasn't, it was almost like I was different in both situations. I didn't fit in. Um, and, and, and I say that because when I was the black kid out there, clearly I stuck out because of the color of my skin. Um, and then when I came to visit my family on the east side, um, I wasn't black enough. I was an Oreo. Um, I was proper, things of that sort. But then um, as an adult, being a black man in the gay community, it's, it's, it's similar. Um, I, I will say though, this is before I was in a relationship with my fiance, I'll just be completely frank, by a white man about dating, um, it was more so in my opinion, fetishized, almost as if, oh, he's black. Oh, this is different. Oh, this is gonna be the whole quote unquote Mandingo experience um, based off of their lack of historical knowledge of what that meant. Um, and I, and I, always made me cringe like um as a gay man in the black community it's to me it's possibly it's it's one of the toughest things a lot of times um because you you never feel like you're man enough there's all these characters out there of what a gay man is and it's not necessarily who we really are you know we do have you know, facets with our flamboyant, more just, you know, what you see sometimes on these in these movies and TV shows and whatnot. But then you also have individuals who are not like that, you know, doesn't make it any better, or any worse. It just, that's not who a lot of us are. Now, let's be very clear. I can't turn it on and be <laughs> a little, you know, a little flamboyant and whatnot. But that's not who I am at my core, you know, it's part of who I am. It's not all of who I am. And then also there's this whole idea that, you know, when women, Black women specifically, um, or you know what, women in general, when they say that they're gay, oh, it's a phase. Oh, they're, that's nothing. They're going to come back. And But if I was to say that, oh, it's not a phase. You, you can't come back from being gay if you're me. You know, it's, it's, it's a double standard as well. And then... Um, it's always a constant fear of being rejected as well when it comes to being a gay man in the Black community. You know, it, it's almost like we do, and I'm speaking for myself, as a Black man, I cheer on my Black community, um, whether you're gay, straight, trans, whatever. Um, I support my Black community. And more specifically, I love to support Black women, just in general, because I was raped by a Black woman, multiple Black, but it's almost like a lot of times that that can also be fetishized. Because if you look at shows like The Real Housewives of Atlanta or Potomac or any of these shows, or even like New York, any of these TV shows, it's almost as if the gay Black man is fetishized. Just like I was fetishized in the gay community by white men. They, they, they utilize the lingo, they utilize um, the mannerisms, um, and they also utilize them to style them for their clothing or the makeup or hair or whatnot. When a lot of times 
black gay men are able to offer a lot more than that. And I wish, and I wish I, I knew how to articulate this much better, but I just wish that we got outside of that framework, that thought process that this is all we have to offer. And I think we are making strides in that direction. However, it's a very slow glacial pace in which we're making that progress. Um, and then the last thing I would say as being a gay man in the black community, and I've had the hardest time with this is um, having conver simple conversations with straight black men. A lot of times I've always, I told my fiance this recently, um, I'm super excited that I'm now part of his life because with him comes his brother-in-law who is absolutely amazing. And then their circle of friends who has now become my circle of friends um, and the other straight men that are in their lives, they have been welcoming, they have been engaging, um, they have you know, been supportive, loving. It's just, it's a new experience for me because based off my own personal experience, I just have a hard time conversing with straight black men because of the way I was raised, the way I was bullied growing up, um, the way I was both physically attacked. Um, don't want to get into too many details, but just it's a lot, you know, trying to trying to be enough for yourself and then compound that with being enough for other people, especially those that you don't even know. Um, so that's just that's all part of the experience of being a black gay man. Not to say that it's the worst experience out there because I know there's other individuals that have gone through a lot more. But if you look at this background, I think I told you this before, um, this is not my actual background. This is uh, my friend's background who's working on his dissertation around uh, black queer um, literature. And you see a lot of different artists up here who have contributed to our our, our the, the, the African diaspora of just who we are as a people. And I, and, I, and I just wish that we would look at it from that point of view instead of the more commercialized um, idea of what it means to be black and gay and being a man. Yeah, I think a part of that is gonna come in my, my two cents and you know throw it away if you want to, is I think to your point, the visualization that we see of things of, of seeing black men, black gay men specifically um, in, in just kind of more normal activities and not where they're um, not just um, where they're, like you're saying, styling people and things, which is fine. You know, that's, if that's their truth, that's, that's whatever, but to see more of the whole spectrum as we're seeing now, like, um, and the name escapes him with the gentleman who's in the NFL that just came out. Um, Carl something, I can't remember the name, but things like that. Just those opportunities to understand that, you know, the, you know, LGBTQ black experience is more than just, you know, hair, nails, fashion, you know, that is a part and that's a welcome part and that's their truth, but that there's more out there is definitely important to see. But I think we see it in, in media, like, like most things, right? Visuals, and, and representation in that way, in a, in a mainstream pop culture sense, I think people will start to really um, latch on to that and kind of be like, oh, okay, so, you know, you could be gay and black and be, you know, a lawyer or be this or be that, because there are, they are out there. And, you, and if you, you know, as being in the community, you'll see that, right? But then also to see it on screen, I think helps a lot of people who may not be exposed to that or may not be aware of it, right? Because, you know, you don't go into a law office and be like, D -d 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 I'm gay, 
I'm gay, I'm gay, I'm gay. Like, it's just like not necessary, right? You're like, okay, we're going to talk about your case. (laughs) We're going to talk about your case, we're going to do the thing. So I think seeing that in other situations where it's not, where it's not fetishized to your point um, and things like that actually reminds me of one comment that um, my friend, uh, my my cousin, Justin was saying um, was around the same kind of fetishization where he would be out at the bar and, you know, just trying to hang out and do whatever. And like some guy was like, oh, I'm I'm not normally into black guys, but you're really cute. And it was like, but why is that? Why is that like an exception? Like, 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 that's not a thing. Like you can be into like, you know, top versus bottom or like, you know, you really like to do outdoorsy things or indoorsy things or whatever. Yeah, you said top versus bottom. (laughs) I know things. I've been knowing things. I've been knowing things. I don't know nothing. I know, I heard things. I know, I know, heard of things. But anyway, like that makes sense to be like, that's a, that's a, that's a preference, right? Like, you know, if you're whatever, but like to be like, Mm-hmm. to throw out all black people and be like oh i'm not normally into black people well, you know we run every shade of brown brown from from the lightest of light from to to the most deep um brown tones and it's just just interesting kind of dynamics there i experienced that once where this guy said to me at a bar um here in dc actually a bar that was being boycotted right now um nelly's um, I was at the bar grabbing a drink and um, this man came up and offered to pay for it. And I said, no, thank you. He said, no, I would love to. And I said, no, thank you. He was like, well, at least, you know, can I have a conversation? I was like, sure. And we started talking. He's like, you're very handsome. And you're so, you're dark skin. You know, I'm normally not attracted to individuals who are as dark as you. And I'm just like, I'm have out. a great day. <laughs> like I'm out. Deuces. Like it, it reminded me of that show Shark Tank. They're like, because of that, I'm out. <laughs> and, I, and I walked away and he's like he, as I was walking away he grabbed my wrist and I was like bruh <laughs> you don't know me <laughs> let me like, tell you about to let's, let's square up you can ask my friends over there what happened so he let go but I, it's just yeah it, it's bizarre it's so bizarre yeah man all right let's switch some gears talk a little bit of pop pop culture hot topics um before we um roll out and we kind of close out this interview um something that's been really pressing that i have been sort of keeping up with was reading a bit about earlier um and if i recall you're a big britney spears fan and that's why i added this i was like i think i remember reggie is like a huge britney spears fan or at least he was so okay okay so i just hashtag free Britney indeed um I was reading a bit and I listened to part of her um her uh testimony I guess it is in her conservatorship case and I I mean I I had some inklings and sort of just the whole case in general you kind of got a little taste of you know there's some there's some real challenges there you know her her father and the folks involved with the conservatorship are very much you know, um, in way more control than, than they should be of her life. But to actually hear her actually talk about all that she's been going through over the last, over several years, but especially over the last few years of her life with the, with the Vegas show stuff and just everything. I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. Um, and sort of what, what you're thinking there. 
Yeah, so I'm still a fan of Britney Spears, um, born December 2nd, 1982, I want to say. <laughs> she was born in Mississippi, but raised in Kentwood, Louisiana. Uh, if anyone, if you ask anyone from my childhood, even from college, they will tell you Reginald lived for Britney. Um, but one thing that really stood out to me was that for the past 13 years, but she's been under a conservatorship since 2008. Um, sorry, yeah, 2008, ever since the incident where she had the breakdown. And the thing that stood out to me was that conservatorships tend to be for individuals who have Alzheimer's, dementia, who are much later in their life. And also a lot of times, more times than not, individuals, once they go under a conservatorship, they never come out of it. Um, but you don't see it this early on in their life. And the thing about Brittany, she's under two different kinds. She has one under her finances and her estate. And then she also has one on her person as an individual. And she had no idea that she could request this to be removed, which means number one, her attorneys, although they've gotten her this far, they've still done her a disservice. Um, and, I, and I think that should definitely be taken into consideration. And then on top of that, um, I remember hearing that she has a contraceptive within her that is stopping her from being able to have children, but it's not her choice. She has to keep that in her so that she cannot have children. She wants to get married. She wants to grow her family. And I don't understand why this woman cannot do that. She is 30, I wanna say 38, 39. She's, you know, she has two children already. She's financially stable. Like she has a healthy relationship with her current partner. Why are these individuals holding her down for so long? And then also the reason people are like, well, she looks like she doesn't, she's not in her right mindset. But if you look at the videos, to me, it's almost like an outcry. Like this is my only way to express myself right now. And on top of that, they have her on lithium. And your mother, I believe she's, is she a chemist? She's a biochemist, yeah, PhD in biochemistry. And exactly. Um, so you know what lithium can do to a person. You, your background's in public health. You know what lithium does to individuals when they're in a certain state of mind. So when you see them, you know, front facing while under that sort of influence, of course, it's going to look like they're you know loopy or not necessarily fully there. I just find it. I, I it just it hurts watching that because she is a person who's clearly in her right mind and wants the assistance to get out of this situation. So I'm really hoping that um, being that this is now coming to more so the forefront ever since that special came out through the New York Times, uh, framing Britney Spears, I really hope that she gets the liberation that she deserves and that she is her own because that's, if, if I'm able to be as liberated, why can't she? Yeah, I, I was really blown away by by this whole conservatorship bit like that's come more to the forefront right like like you said in 2008 sort of she had that episode and I don't know that I realized the conservatorship was just was not only of her finances which you know that there's a lot of people who have that that sort of piece to kind of make sure they manage their money that they retain the money they have da 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 um, but the, but the mind blown was the IUD, which is the contraceptive that you're talking about, um, being forced upon her. Like that is just, 
that's criminal in my mind. And I'm not a lawyer, but whatever. I mean, I just feel like you should have, you know, we fight so much with the Roe v. Wade and, you know, this autonomy of, of your own body and, and, and agency over your own body as women. And just to, to imagine that you are, you know, you're having a healthy relationship with a partner. She's only got so many years left um, of being able to have children without putting herself at major risk anyway. So the fact that she wa- like something as simple as like, I would like to have more children seems like a no brainer for anybody on the street. If you go up to Susie Q down the street and she decides that she, her and Bobby, Bobby Joe want to have more kids, they can. And it's not a question. It's just like, okay, assuming the biology all works out the time we did it. It just, it just is mind blowing. And I don't, understand it because a big portion of the conservatorship falls under her own father, which you wouldn't expect such things from, you know, as we think of parents in the traditional sense, right? Like that they're, they should be looking out for the best interest of their child and who she ultimately is the child of. So I just was just blown away by hearing a lot of this, especially the, I actually saw on YouTube, there's a bit, there's a, the audio of her actual full testimony out there and actually hearing it from her own voice of like all these, you know, that the lithium they've got her on, they've got her monitored all the time. She has no, she has no say in her own life. She has no like ability to do what she wants to do when she wants to do it and just be her own adult person. Um, It's just craziness. It's just craziness. And anything that Anything beyond full release of her conservatorship is absolutely ridiculous. Because I think it's very clear to to anyone with a brain um, that has any any sense of empathy and just thinking, like, could you imagine if any part of that was part of your own life or someone you love, you would be like, we've got to get you out of this situation. Like, it's just crazy. Oh, I'm running. You, yeah, you're not about to put no conservatorship on me. <laughs> I'd be like, where are we going? Canada, Mexico? We're leaving. Like, this is, no, we're done. Out. Exactly. No, um, when it, you know, and I try to think of it from a lens of maybe to her father, Jamie Lynn. um, Is it Jamie? No, it's just Jamie. Maybe he think he is doing what's best for his daughter. But I think at this point, he should take a, you know, take a seat and listen to what she's actually saying to him. Um, and I think that's what's going to do, that's what's going to do the best for them, honestly. He's just listen. And honestly, I think that's what a lot of people need to do right now. Just sit and listen because individuals are talking, but no one's listening. Um, this situation is an example. Um, the situation in regards to the race war that I feel like is impending or currently happening, um, people are not just listening to each other. And I think if we just do a little bit more of that, um, it could be it could be life-changing. Absolutely. Well, this has been fantastic and a good conversation that we've had that's run the gamut, I believe, of, of topics, which I think is always great in an interview. This is the part where if there's anything you have coming up as far as events, whether that's through Millennial Action Project, yourself, uh, any social media ways folks can get in contact with you, any of that that you care to share, this is your moment to shine. <laughs> Got it. So no major updates on the Millennial Action Front. I want to keep that on the best side. Um, but for me personally, uh, yeah, just stay looking now for the announcement around um, 
the launch, the official launch of Rosewood Strategies. Um, that you can find that on my social media page at the Reginald Darby on Instagram or Political Noir with an E on Twitter or just Darby Reginald on Facebook. Awesome, awesome! Thank you so much, Reggie, for for sitting down with us. Um, this has been a fantastic interview, and we thank you so so much for for joining us on the Victory Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks again to Reggie for sitting down with me to really talk about some tough issues and some very interesting points of view um, on the host of topics that we tackled during this episode. Thanks. We did have a few audio challenges, but I think we were able to power through. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, subscribe this podcast with your friends, your family, and even your enemies. You can find us on all your major platforms. Check us out on our website at thevictorypodcast.com. When you get to our website, check out our Where to Listen page so you can find all the various podcast platforms where you'll find The Victory Podcast. If you're also looking to support The Victory Podcast in other ways, you can check out our merch page, become a Patreon, any of those things. Those are all on our website at thevictorypodcast.com. That's T-H-E-V-I-C-T-O-R-Y podcast.com. We're also on all the various social media platforms as at The Victory Pod. That includes Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So in this episode, as I end every episode, every problem has a solution. It's whether you're willing to do the work to find it. Let's do the work and be victorious.